Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham, coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. A very special show today as we kick off our fall season. We've been off for the summer, and we're coming back with uh, a great show with someone who has taken the Canadian history world by storm, joining us live from Vancouver. It's Andrea Eidinger, the author of, author, what, what the curator, the, 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 the patron saint of unwrittenhistories.com, the, 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 one of the most authoritative blogs in Canadian history right now, uh, joining us, as I said, from Vancouver. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's really awesome. So I really like what you've done with the Unwritten Histories blog. And, and for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know what that is, which I think will be a small number of people, I think we have a big overlap in our audiences. You essentially, you, you write blog posts and you have guest blog posts come in, people writing about different things going on, but you also curate the weekly wrap-up in Canadian history, what's been going on, what's been published, and then you have your best articles published in Canadian history each month on the blog. And and the blog, from what I can tell, has really been blowing up, and that's my perception from afar. And, and has that is that the reality of what's been going on? Well, yeah, it's amazing. Um, I didn't think anyone would read it when I started. <laughs> so um, the, the uh, attention's been um, really quite amazing, and I'm, I'm um, overwhelmed by the response to the blog. It's been really, really wonderful. So where did the idea come from? Because this is truly something that was missing in the market, I think. You know, the, what we do at Active History is more the analysis, and we, we try to respond to things, but we don't really curate a lot of what's going on elsewhere, and I think that's the case of most blogs. If you look at things like the Notches blog or the Niche blog, th- those sorts of outlets are more about producing content, which you are doing, but you added this really interesting element. So how did you come about with that idea? Um, I kind of stole the idea from other people. <laughs> um, it, it's not really common in, in the field of history so much, but um, it's very popular in um, other fields. And I, I spend far too much time on the Internet just browsing. And I was inspired by Nursing Clio in particular because they do their Sunday morning medicine. And it's a curated list of sort of top articles or news stories about medical history and sort of intersections of medicine, sexuality, and gender. And um, I always look forward to those posts on Sundays. And there's also another um, uh, sort of curated list that's done by two romance novel authors who do um, anything that strikes their fancy in terms of history, and they publish it on Saturdays, and they call it Breakfast Links. Oh, that's a that's a great title. <laughs> yeah, well, because the idea is that you read it over breakfast, right? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, it was. Um, I just love them because it, it it makes it a lot easier to to sort of find new blogs that I would want to follow, but also to sort of um, keep up on what's going on elsewhere. And I felt that there was um, a real need for that in the field of Canadian history because there's just so much amazing stuff, but most people don't know about it or it's hard to find. And I thought that you know why not? If I have all of these resources and I had a list of, of blog, Canadian history blogs that I was following. If I already have all of those resources in place, then why wouldn't I make a list to help other people? Yeah, that's a, a very fair point. Like, yeah, why wouldn't you do that? I think the argument 
why you wouldn't do that is that it seems like an incredible amount of work <laughs> to, to do. I would say that's the reason not to do it. So, so your weekly roundup of Canadian history, how long would you say that takes? Uh, it depends. Um, certain seasons are busier than others. So in the summer, it would take me maybe like an, an evening to do. But during the year, it's more like a full day. Um, wow. But I have most of it automated at this point. So like I have um, a number of different apps set up that, that track things for me. Okay. Um, so consolidating all of the blog feeds into one place. And I have another app that's really cool called Nuzzle that actually tracks the most shared articles on your Twitter feed. Uh, which is really good for keeping track of like what's going viral. It's been really helpful for the uh, Sir John and McDonald debates right now. Right, yeah, um, yeah. And um, I have Google Alerts set up on a number of different subjects. And, yeah, so, I mean, it, it is a lot of work, but a lot of it's made easier because of uh, some really cool programs that other people made. So it, it, let's, the, the Sir John and McDonald stuff is really interesting because it – there's a lot of stuff now being written as we the the Ontario Teachers Federation put forward this motion to try and get rid of all schools named after John A. McDonald and have him have him renamed because of his uh, obviously very contested legacy with Indigenous peoples. So let's say someone like a, a contested figure uh, in her own right, Margaret Wente, writes an article, uh, and I don't know if she has, but. I assume at some point she will address this issue if she hasn't already. Is <laughs> is that the sort of piece that you would include then in your roundup, or are you looking more at things done by historians? I try to balance it. I'm, I'm mostly concerned with what historians are saying. Um, I usually describe it as an informed opinion rather than just somebody who considers themselves to be a public intellectual and considers their opinions to be important. Um, I usually include links from sort of more prominent authors um, simply out of the desire to be inclusive and more fair and balanced. Right. But I am usually very reluctant to put anything by Margaret Wente into her <laughs> because it's, um, I, I have a great deal of problem, uh, many problems with her approach to history. Let's just put it that way. No, I, I think that's fair. But, and, but it, I think it even speaks to a larger issue that I have with, the idea of a columnist in 2017, where you have someone who is expected to write about whatever comes up, whatever the issue of the day is, when they don't necessarily have background in that. Like, it, it, it seems like, and even like cable news works on this too. Like, I don't know how someone, I, I don't know why people think that Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, or <laughs> Rachel Maddow can be experts in every aspect of the world. It just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And yet they go on these long flowing breakdowns of, of what has happened that day with, with little to no support for what they're saying. Oftentimes I find, and, and that sort of is a columnist idea. So including any of that stuff in a roundup of Canadian history, I, you know, the, I could see that being a tough navigation point for you in, in terms of making sure that you're you're addressing what is happening as people discuss history, but also making sure that it is in, informed. Yes, because I think that there are a lot of people, like I said, with opinions who, who are writing columns or editorials, and, and a lot of them are based on very flawed premises, and I am unwilling to help propagate uh, arguments that are based on um, 
very problematic assumptions or based on sort of uh, racist ideologies or on a celebration of settler colonialism. But because I'm also trying to reach um, not just people in academia who tend to be on the left, uh, but people who are more interested in history generally, it, it's a tough call. There's a lot of times where I um, will, you know, solicit opinions from friends. I'm like, this, should this go in the roundup? I'm not sure. I really hate it, but I feel like I should put it in anyways. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my solution is usually just to put a caveat that I include this for the sake of completeness, but I, I fundamentally disagree. And that's, and I think that's probably the way to go because it's relevant to historians where people are writing about history, even if they're not historians, especially if they have a prominent platform. Yes, everyone thinks history is so easy to do that you don't need actual training. That's true. Anyone can just do it. This is something that has bothered me for a long time. And, and I have it in writing from before I finished my PhD. So I feel as I'm comfortable maintaining this since I have the PhD. But like med students aren't doctors. Law students aren't lawyers. Why do we call history students historians? This is something I've never understood. And it, you know, it, it, for some reason it bothered me when I was a student. It doesn't bother me as much anymore because I don't hear students running around calling them historians as much as I did when I was a student. But I, for some reason it always irked me as it sort of took away a bit from the, what the discipline was that, you know, it, it takes work and you have to learn about the discipline and how to be a historian. You can't just read a book or go see Hamilton and say, hey, I'm a historian now. What are you talking about? That is the best way to learn about history, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, apparently Hamilton is highly overrated from what I've heard. Um, I have seen it. My sister-in-law saw it live with Lynn um, Manuel Miranda, and I'm very jealous of her. But um, right. yeah. Well, you, well, the, a very high authority um, who currently resides in Washington, of course, said it was highly overrated. And we all know that what he says is 100% accurate all the time. So... Of course. Clearly. Uh, it, it's highly overrated. So the other thing that you do is the top five articles, academic, scholarly articles each month in Canadian history. And this is something that has always boggled my mind because as a student, I always thought, who can read all this stuff? <laughs> and, and, and even now, I, I wonder who can read all this stuff. And then here you are clearly curating a list, which by definition means you have excluded articles that you have also read. So how do you manage to do that and, and read all these scholarly articles, especially in a diverse area? Like you're not just reading in your specialty, you're reading diverse across the lines of Canadian history. You know, how do you manage to, to do that? Well, I think part of the, the um, premise for being a professor is that it doesn't matter what sort of field of history that you specialize in, you can, you're sort of qualified to make broad judge, no matter what subject your students are writing papers on. Like my, my particular field is post-war Canadian history, but I've been teaching pre and post confed courses for, for years. And, uh, you know, I have to, I have the training to be able to evaluate on, on a pretty basic level because good history is good history, regardless of what particular subject is being covered. Yeah. And I, I think it's pretty clear, or I've, I've tried to make it clear on the blog that I am not an authoritative opinion on every single um, subfield of Canadian history. Um, I'm merely approaching these in terms of uh, what did I find the most useful or what did I enjoy reading the most. So um, I don't want to come off as an authoritative voice in what people should be reading. So those are just the ones that I like the best. And... 
Yeah, and I, I read I read a lot. Um, I I've always been a bookworm. I you know been reading 800 page books in one day since I was about 12 because uh, wow. I'm crazy. So yeah. um, <laughs> that's, I, I a, that's a lot. Like that's a lot of words. It, it is, but I I. I've been doing it for so long. I, I, I don't think I can read at a normal speed if I tried. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm very curious and I always want to know what's happening. So I, I think that's why I read so much and so widely. And it's really awesome to be able to read all of these articles in fields that have nothing to do with what I'm researching or even what I'm teaching. So, um, I think it's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm glad that, People are interested in what I have to say or think that my recommendations are worthwhile. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. So in a, in a given month, then, are you reading the entirety of each journal that is released? Or are you picking and yeah. choosing? No, I read the whole thing. I don't read the book reviews, obviously. But, yeah, I, I, I read almost the entire piece or almost the entire issue. I mean, sometimes if I'm reading a journal article and I get halfway through and I'm like, this is not something I am enjoying and I do not know if anyone else would want to read it, I, I might stop at that point. But um, I, I read most of every article and every issue. Wow, that's very impressive to me. Like that's because it's, there's, it's just the volume is so much. And especially, I mean, I, I can't imagine I'm unique in this that, if it's something that is completely beyond what I study, it's or would generally be interested in it outside of the stuff I study, I, I wouldn't start it. I might read the abstract, but it's it's. I think that's a great skill to have, and it puts you, I think, in a very good position as an authority for what's going on in the discipline. Even if you don't want to call yourself an authority in the different aspects, like the the subject matter itself. I think, from what I can tell, you're probably the leading authority on at least the historiography of Canada and Canadian historians over the past couple of years. I'm probably the most up-to-date, <laughs> Right. And, and I think that's, I think there's a very, that's a very important thing. Well, I think that, I think under ideal circumstances, we would all be doing something like this, but, uh, and I think back, you know, in the olden days, back when there was maybe, what, three journals or something, and professors didn't teach nearly as much as they do now, it was possible to be on top of the historiography uh, like this, but most of us don't have the luxury of being able to read to this extent. I mean, I could go and talk about the pressures that um, tenure track and tenure professors are facing with the um, sort of changes in the discipline and how much more service is required from them means that there's less time to do uh, reading and sessionals don't even get me started about how little time you have to, to, to catch up on the latest historiography. Uh, historiography. So the, the fact that I can do it seems that Again, it's, it's something that I can contribute, and, and I'm happy to do it. I, I'm, like, an actual history nerd. Like, I watch docu history documentaries for fun. I listen to history podcasts for fun and on a wide range of subjects. So I'm happy to do it. I, I learn uh, so much from doing this. Uh, it's amazing because um, the, the sort of dirty secret is that my bachelor's degree is actually in European history. <laughs> no, no. I know, no, right? No, no. 
uh, at McGill, I did 18th and 19th century Western European history because that was my thing and I, I loved it. Uh, and I was convinced to switch by my honors supervisor. She's like, there's no future in, in European history in Canada. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> so I went into grad school without, I mean, with, with a pretty basic still understanding of Canadian history. So, and then even going back before that, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a little girl. So I was fascinated by Egypt and mm. Greece and, and Rome. So I've, I've always read widely and I see so many connections between all of these different fields. And I feel like there's so much that we all have to learn from each other. And it's a shame that the constraints of our profession force us to read very narrowly for the most part. And do you think that's a product of, I mean, you're in a sessional position. I've been doing sessional stuff for the past year as well. Is it is it just the fact that the market is what the market is? Is that the, the cause of that? I think that the proliferation of journals and journal articles combined with increasing pressures on both permanent and precarious faculty mean that most of us don't have the luxury of being able to read widely or at all, unless you're doing research for an article. So, hmm. I mean, I could probably go on about the, the pressure on sessional instructors and all of these other things. But yeah, I just think that in terms of the responsibilities that historians have, this is one that's kind of fallen by the wayside because there are a lot of other pressing concerns that need to be addressed first. Yeah, I think that's a very a very true statement that that, that has been the case. But the flip side then would be, as you say, doing sessional work, this has to help your teaching, I would imagine, having this wide knowledge of what's going on. Oh, it's been fun, especially now that I know so many of the people who wrote these articles. <laughs> it, it's, it's very strange now to be teaching them. I was teaching over the summer post-war uh, history, and um, it was really awesome to be able to share Dennis Molinaro's latest work on the Kushenko affair. And mm. The article that came out in Labor a couple of months ago, and to be able to share that with my students and be like, "This is this just came out. This is like headline news in Canadian history," um, was pretty amazing. And uh, I think students often forget that history isn't just something that's dead. You know, that like we're constantly doing it and we're constantly reinventing the field. It's awesome, and I think it helps make it seem more alive and relevant. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. And and even at that too, if a student comes to you saying this this class you did this summer which I, I really like the title, uh, the subtitle of it, Anxiety and Affluence in the Atomic Age. I can't um, take credit for that. That's the UBC name. <laughs> okay. It's a great title. I, I really do like that title. But if someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to write about the Mulroney government in the, in the 80s, presumably you could say, oh, yeah, there's this thing that you should read because you have this knowledge now of what's happening. Or at least you could probably throw out a name of the historian who they should reference. Like, it, I think that's a huge advantage where I know this has happened to me a bunch of times where people come to me and say, hey, we want to maybe write about this for a final project. Do you have any ideas for articles we should go read or books we should go read? And depending on the topic, sometimes I'll have to say, you know, it just, I, I take a note of what they want to write about and then I have to go look up different things and see what's going on in that area. So for you to have sort of that internal Rolodex that you could reference, I, I would imagine students appreciate that. I, I hope so, but I, I mean, there's still huge gaps in my knowledge, and I'm I'm a social historian by training and inclination, so there's a lot of stuff about Mulroney that I would probably need to ask my husband about, <laughs> because he's a political historian, so yeah, I, I it does help, although I, I still wish that I was able to do more recommendations off the top of my head, but thankfully they seem very impressed by, by, by my ability to use America history in life, so... 
that's pretty good for me. Yeah, students are blown away when you mention American history in life. Too yeah, long. they're like, a whole database just for history? I'm like, yes. Yeah, and I can just put in, like, 1970s counterculture and stuff comes up. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the deal with summons is, but it's like the bane of my existence. Uh, I don't know why all of these libraries are pushing it because it just makes life more difficult for students and for me. Yeah, absolutely. Like, just, yeah, we have this amazing resource. Just let's keep that. Yeah, but I mean, students don't learn how to do this. I, I had the benefit of going through the Quebec system. And so in Seja, I did a whole course on research methodologies and how to write history papers where I learned about this database. So I, I was lucky in that sense. But most students, you know, I, I've had fourth year students who've never heard of this database before. Which is absolutely crazy. Yeah, but a lot of people don't think to kind of sit, sit down and explain how it works to students because a lot of us assume that they pick it up somewhere along the lines or they, they've done some kind of research methodology course in their first year of university. But um, that just isn't the case. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's true. Having taught the first year history, it's something that you're not conscious of while you're, or I wasn't the first time I taught it to say, hey, this is how you go find stuff. Because yeah, so the assumption in the first year is that they learned how to do that in high school. <laughs> right, like, which of course they didn't because why would you learn how to use an academic database when you're in high school that doesn't make any sense well and, and they don't even do history proper right it's at least in DC, it's, it's social studies or something like that so i mean and i don't want to rag on high school teachers because i i do not envy their job no uh but it's it's a lot of work so i've just ended up doing a three-hour workshop in all of my first year classes on how to write history papers so it, it makes it a lot, it makes it easier on me when it comes to marking. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Like if they write, if you teach them how to write better papers, they'll write better papers. Their grades will be higher. You don't have to spend as much time grading because it takes more time to grade a bad paper than a good paper. It's a really, it's a win-win. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, I, I get excited about how awesome footnotes can be sometimes because, you know, a beautifully formatted footnote is a thing of beauty. There's nothing better than it. It's, there really, it really isn't. I tell my students all the time that, there's there's definitely a correlation between how well the footnotes are and the grade of the paper. I tell them the M&M story, the brown M&M story. Did you, do you know about no, that? No, I don't know that story. I think it was Van Halen, but don't quote me on that one. Big rock band. They were performing in the States somewhere, and the the stage that they were working on was sort of very highly technical and required following detailed instructions in order to set it up safely. And uh, they were performing, and it collapsed. And so since then, they put into their contractor rider that they want to have a bowl of M&Ms with all of the brown ones taken out behind stage before they go on. And the idea is that if they can go into the green room and see that bowl, then they know that someone has read that contract thoroughly enough that they can be confident that the stage is put up properly. That's a really good idea. That, that really is the rock star equivalent of footnotes. It is. I mean, it's the canary in the coal mine. Also, yeah. it makes it sound way cooler because, you know, I know about a band that's <laughs> a semi-famous, mostly famous. I think pretty famous. Yeah, well, you know, it gives me that street cred. Yeah, I mean, it might not be famous with your students now. Uh, I don't know. But I think a famous, yeah, famous band. Um, you also, sorry, uh, a couple minutes ago you mentioned your husband, Lee Blanding, who has been on this show before. And before we recorded, you mentioned that he is the copy editor of Unwritten Histories, but wants absolutely no credit for that. So I'm just going to say that he is the copy editor of Unwritten Histories, 
and <laughs> leave that as it is. I'm going to um, be in so much trouble. <laughs> well, I said it. So it's really, I mean, if he wants to complain, that's fine. But he's been I, I, on the show before. He was on the uh, Celebrating Canada Part 2 episode that we did at the Museum of History a couple years ago. Uh, he was included uh, in that episode. So I feel comfortable saying that. Uh, so beyond the the collecting of different articles for both the weekly and the monthly wrap-ups. You also have been writing different things for mm-hmm. the blog. You did your What to Expect at Congress. You did that in 2016. You did it again this year. You've had some guest posts we talked about before we started recording. The one you did uh, that you had written about the new Canada Hall at the Museum of History. Mm-hmm. Where do you summon the energy then to, on top of putting these lists together to then write blogs about what is either on your mind or what's going on. Like, like where does that come from? Is that just a need to keep the, the blog moving and have different posts or, or is there some sort of personal outlet that you like to have where you can sort of get something out there on a regular basis? Well, when I started the blog, I was just doing those posts so that the roundup was kind of a, a late edition. I don't know where I get the energy to do that. A lot of people ask me that, and I, I don't know if I have an answer so much as I just do it. Because I think that when I started uh, teaching as a sessional instructor, I I created a number of sort of tools and resources for myself in order to make teaching um, a little bit easier, like rubrics and setting up comment banks. And um, I, I had a list of you know, the best websites to go to in terms of finding primary sources to create group activities around. And I just felt like, why not share this with other people? Uh, if I've already done all the work and I, I know where all of this stuff is, it's not that difficult to put it together. And um, I've been writing long enough. I mean, when, you, when you're a sessional instructor, right, you have to be able to put out lectures on a regular basis and make them sound internally coherent, or at least th- that's the goal. So I, I don't see it as very different than that. I mean, it's the same amount of work, the same type of work. It's just a different format. But the difference, I think, is with a written post versus a lecture that people are, can read it and then they can be a lot more thorough in trying to break it down. A lecture, and this happens to all of us, if you, you misstate something and someone says, hey, I don't think that's right. Like, oh, wait, what? Oh, yeah, right. Thank you. And you just correct it sort of easily and it's not a big deal. But there's something different with the Internet where... You put something out there, and it's up, and then it's up for a long time. Lectures, there's there's that ephemeral beauty of lectures that it just goes away. If you, so, if you have a bad lecture, it's it's just gone. Whereas these things are here, so I, I, there's a difference I think that's important to distinguish the two. That I think it has to be a little different in the approach and putting it together, does it not? I guess it doesn't feel that different for me, just because I don't know if I have a good answer to that one. It's just. I just do it. I, okay, no, that's fine. It's I, I think that there's just a lot of stuff that I want to talk about and a lot of resources that I want to share, and that makes it easy for me. It's also gone to the point where I regularly put out about 5,000 words per week, so, I mean, it's not really... I mean, writing isn't the hard part. The hard part is doing background research for, for some of these posts uh, at this point, and uh, like I said, I have a wonderful copy editor who makes sure I don't sound like a complete <laughs> idiot half the time because I am very prone to typos. Right. Which but, is not an issue for lectures. No, it really, no, it, it isn't. Again, a beautiful part about lectures. And in a lecture, you don't even have to write a full sentence on the, in the lecture notes. Like, at least I don't write full 
sentences usually, yeah. which is a something you can't do in, in a blog post. Uh, but even 5,000 words, it's still a lot. I mean, if, if you look at what we do at Active History, I would say the average post is, is generally speaking, I mean, there's obviously exceptions, but generally in the seven to 1,000 word range. So mm-hmm. on an average week, this our site is putting out around 5,000 words, right? And that's usually with five different authors. Yeah. So the way you, you sort of shrug that off is like, oh, it's only about 5,000 words. That's... It's still a lot of words to be writing, in addition to all the reading and then the teaching and everything else. Like it, it's still a significant contribution. Well, when I started it, I, I wasn't teaching, right? So I had all the time in the world to do this. It's a bit more challenging now that I'm teaching again. But I've, I've always been a mystery as far as my ability to do a, a great deal of work. When I went through undergrad, I did five courses a semester and I worked part time. Wow. Uh, and when I did my, uh, when I was in grad school, like I did two courses a semester and I did work as a TA and as an RA and um, my I'm pretty sure my supervisor is convinced I'm not really human uh, <laughs> because of my ability to, to work really quickly but uh, it's just my my brain goes fast uh, so it's mostly a matter of, of my fingers being able to keep up with that when I'm typing well then in that respect does the blog help because if, if you're always working fast there's this instant I don't know, instant release, instant gratification, however you want to call it, of getting something out there versus working fast on a peer-reviewed article that you might not see for two years. I guess so. I just don't see it as personal gratification so much. It's just I like helping people. Maybe it's just me as a teacher. Like when I was a kid, I didn't play mom and baby. I played teacher because I'm a, I'm a dork like that. And I just I like sharing information and I like helping other people. So it's it's great to be able to provide a resource for that. And, and I think that's more gratifying for me than, than really anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I feel really passionate about, about what I do. So, I mean, that makes the writing easy for me, I guess. Uh, yeah. When you're excited and it's, I, I always tell this to students to pick a topic to write about that you're interested in because, yeah. you know, if you're completely disinterested, that comes out in the writing and it's never any good. And I, mean, I can think of stuff I've written too that uh, that has been published and not published that that it wasn't good because I didn't really have a stake in the issue. I was just sort of writing about it because I was told to write about it. Uh, so so that that is a factor. I'm I'm going through as you're as we're talking uh, some of the most popular posts as oh. identified by you on the site. That list uh, is out of date. But... <laughs> It does seem that most of the ones I'm clicking on are from from last year, well, uh, you, the most the, recent. The more up to date one in my uh, birthday post from March. So okay, um, but but some of these are, are pretty interesting. You have I, I like why do we celebrate Thanksgiving in Canada? I think that's a really good idea for a post. Uh, I I also like the historian's guide to Twitter, which I have sent people to in the past, uh, students of mine, uh, as to how to use Twitter. The CHA guide. I, I I read the 2017 one uh, before Congress this year. Even though I wasn't going, I still read it um, <laughs> as to how, how I should act at, Cong- at the Congress I'm not going to. Uh, but I also stumbled upon here, I, I love this infograph of That's what fun. to call your professor. That was my sense of humor getting the best of me. That is so funny. So I would encourage <laughs> anyone to go, go look at this, but essentially it's what should I call my professor? And then it's sort of a mind 
puzzle, not what is it, like a mind maze or what, what are I, those things called? Yeah. Uh, that takes you as to what you should, what you should call them. It's really quite good. <laughs> I, I just got tired of being called Mrs. Eidinger. <laughs> Do you get that a lot from the students? Yes. Oh. Um, it might be the um, institutions where I've been teaching, uh, which tend to be more learning colleges than universities until relatively recently. But um, these students are, and, and since it's a first year class, most of these students have been trained to refer to their female instructors as Ms. or Miss, oh. usually Miss. And, or if not, they've been uh, taught to refer to sort of older females uh, who are in positions of authority as Misses. So that tends to be what I get. And I, I tell people over and over again, just call me Andrea. It's just easier for everybody. But, you know, we've been drilling rules of manners into students for, for long enough. But, yeah, mostly I get I get called at least once a semester um, Mrs. Eidinger, or I see that on a paper submission, and I kind of, like, my mother doesn't even go by Mrs. Eidinger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a sort of a cringeworthy cringeworthy one i i kind of like it i've had students as i've been teaching more and more international students like in courses specifically for international people including when i taught overseas last summer a lot of the students i find are just come up and say hey professor sean which i kind of like uh, it, it makes me sound like a character in a 90s sitcom i think <laughs> which i Kind of works for me, but uh, but yeah, that yeah, Mrs. Eidinger is yeah, that's sort of a, a, a cringeworthy one. So I don't think I've ever gotten Professor Andrea. No. It sounds weird. Yeah, maybe yeah, it doesn't flow. Maybe it really works better with a one-syllable name. Maybe yeah. Because you're coming off that three-syllable word, and you can just yeah, maybe just the the rolls off the tongue better with a one-syllable, and a one-syllable name with not that doesn't have a hard sound in it. Well, I think Sean could also be a last name, so it sounds a little bit smoother, but Andrea is uh, emphatically a first name. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very uh, much so. Yeah, so mostly I just get Professor Eidinger, Dr. Eidinger, usually mispronounced, but, you know, I appreciate the effort. Right, yeah, at least they're trying. Yes, although it's always fun to see the spelling mistakes on that. Essay submissions. Um, okay. so big, big, important note. Don't misspell your professor's name when you're submitting an essay. Yeah, not a good sign. Not a good start to the paper. The, you know, the impetus between that blog post was the same as all the other ones. Is that, you know, this, is an, this is an easy problem to solve. Um, that and, and, like I said, my sense of humor got away from me with that one. I don't think it did. I think it was right in line with what it should be because you explain everything below. Yeah. Right. So it works not out. It's not that part. <laughs> okay, but it, you did. So it's not just the info, uh, the infograph or whatever these things are called. So in addition to to all this, I, I'm actually curious about your physical location too, because you mentioned you did grad school in Montreal. Now you live in UBC, uh, in UBC. Excuse me. You live in Vancouver, uh, working at uh, UBC uh, this summer, and. I'm curious because I think that people on the West Coast, for as much as there is a disadvantage for things like traveling for Congress or especially for someone like me, if all your stuff is at Library and Archives Canada, being out in Vancouver is is not very convenient. Uh, it's a big country. But in things like the the digital things that, that we do, if, say, for, for things like Twitter or blogs, especially blogs that maybe update more than once a day, being on the West Coast is an advantage because 
you can you're, you're, you can be active later in the day and even if you are starting your day at let's say a crazy early time for someone like me like eight o'clock local so 11 o'clock east you can sort of look back and catch up on the first part of the day in the east and then you have that time at, you know four or five o'clock on the west coast say you pack it in at five or five thirty it's eight thirty east and you sort of the the zeitgeist of what's happened is sort of wrapped up by that point i think that's an advantage on these digital things and i'm just curious if you would agree with that assessment having having lived in both places even if your your time in montreal might have been pre all this digital stuff yeah uh, just to, to clarify i i did my undergrad at mcgill and i did my graduate school at uvic in victoria so oh right i'm sorry yes i did misspeak there sorry no, it's okay. It's complicated. Where Where is Andrea from? Is she from Montreal? Or is she from... <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a definite advantage. Also, I'm not a morning person. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that, that is both a challenge and a gift because um, sometimes when people want to Skype with me or talk with me in the morning, I'm like, it's like six o'clock BC time. Can we meet a little bit later, please? But yeah, I, I, I tend to do sort of my review of Twitter for the day at the end of the day. And, and i can pretty much catch everything because I mean most of the discussions have, have already finished at that point, which is great. Although it does sort of limit the ability of people on the West Coast to participate in those discussions, so it's a, it's a catch twenty two. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And and I've noticed people on the East Coast, especially if they're tweeting out links, they'll say, "Hey, to the PM crowd," which is really like, "Hey, people on the West Coast." <laughs> Yes. Like it's sort of code for that, um, I, I think. Although I'm part of the PM crowd. I kind of live on West Coast time, even though I live in, in Ottawa, uh, to be honest. And, and it's crazy. So people actually say, hey, it's 9 o'clock East. Like, let's set up a meeting. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, well, a lot of people forget that I'm in Vancouver. So that uh, that, uh, that is a problem because I talk about Montreal a lot. So I, I can understand the confusion. Okay, because uh, I thought I was being a little unreasonable because we're recording right now. We, we started this call at noon East time. I thought that was a little maybe pushing it. Well, it's only for me, but I'm a, I'm a night owl. So, you know, right. I can be awake at this hour. <laughs> and next week I, I start, uh, I have a class on Thursdays at 830 in the morning. I'm kind of dreading that. Ooh. But uh, that is, not, and it's an hour and a half commute. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> get there. But uh, I, I can be awake because naps are my friend. So naps inevitably will solve any problems that I encounter. Absolutely. Um, but I, I think one of the biggest challenges in the field, I, I mean, aside from the bilingual uh, issue, is is the, the two coasts. It's it's hard to have a dialogue when there's that big of a, a sort of time difference. Uh, I know that like when Krista and I were putting together the schedule for Beyond 150, that was a, a challenge. We're like, we didn't want to start so early that people on the West Coast couldn't do it. We didn't start want to start so late that people on the East Coast basically couldn't start until the evening. So it was, it's it's a challenge. And think about those poor people at Memorial, like oh, God, four yes. and a half hour difference for between you and them. Like it, it, it's true. It's, it does make it hard to have any sort of back and forth in, in a way that makes, you know, that is productive and, and ongoing. It almost turns into like a, I, I do this Monday, you do this Tuesday, then I respond Wednesday sort of thing. It, it does make it hard for his as not a big obstacle as you might think it is, it, it can be pretty problematic. Especially since like normal people end their business day at 4.30, which 
in my world is like one thirty in the afternoon. So it's like, right. I'm barely awake and can respond. So most of the time, yeah, it, it, it does delay things. And I think a lot of people also tend to forget about us on the West coast. Uh, Cause a lot of historians are located in central Canada in Ontario, you know, to a lesser extent Quebec. So, you know, we're well, yeah, still- I mean, and that, but that's, that's <laughs> just, I mean, that's a product of where the schools are and yes. sort of the, the way the population works in, in this country and where people have, have settled uh, over time. But at the same time, you have three schools that aren't far away. Uh, I don't know. How far is UNBC? That's not. That's pretty far. <laughs> okay. But that would have been the fourth to me because I would count UVic as being, I mean, not physically it's hard to, it can be hard to get there. Yeah. But you can at least engage in, you know, there's three communities right there. Actually, there's way more universities, but most people don't know about them. There's there's VIU, Vancouver Island University, and oh, I'm on. Yes, yeah, there's Katie, because yeah, Katie, Ro- our good friend Katie Rollwagon. Um, yeah, got a job there. Yes, I did forget about Vancouver Island. And there's Ryerson, uh, not Ryerson, Royal Rose University. Um, there's University of the Fraser Valley, which is out in Abbotsford. I uh, have worked at uh, Kwantlen University. There's Langara College. There's there's a whole bunch of little ones all over here because uh, BC has a different system. So there are a whole bunch of teaching universities that are around here as well. So okay. most people when they think about BC just think about UBC, SFU, and UVic, but there are quite a few over here. Well, yeah, and well, look at me showing my Ontario bias <laughs> <laughs> right there. So have have you have you found a difference between West Coast historians and, and East Coast historians having? Oh, the, totally. Yeah. There's a huge difference. It was a really big culture shock when I moved out here. <laughs> in every aspect? Like- in, in every way. I'm still, like, you can take the girl out of Montreal, but you can't take the Montreal out of the girl. <laughs> so um, it's still, like, sometimes I confuse people, and, and people confuse me because they say things, and I have no idea what they're talking about, even though I've lived in B.C. for 10 years. But I think that there's just different types of history that people do out here as opposed to what they do. Uh, in other parts of the country. And this has just come out mostly through discussions with historians on other sides, uh, you know, of the country or in different parts, different provinces. Um, each province seems to have, you know, particular areas that it focuses on. And yeah, I've only really taught at universities in UBC, in, in BC though. So I, I, I don't know if I can speak authoritatively on the subject, okay. having attended uh, McGill out East. And uh, that's the, the extent of my education, post-secondary education in Canada that's not in BC. Right. Okay. Well, uh, okay. Then I will say that having attended schools in, and I think very th- three different environments, three Canadian schools in different environments, Nipissing in Northern Ontario, University of Regina, University of Ottawa, like, huge differences between them and, and not necessarily in the, the content, but yes, in the content, but sort of stylistically and sort of how people approach issues and the, the framework that you get at, at different places. And that's why I truly believe that if you're going to get advanced degrees in history, you should get degrees from different places. I I truly believe that. I kind of came to UVic by accident, so I'm not sure I can claim to be authoritative on the subject. But I totally agree because the the differences are enormous. Like I was just talking with a friend of mine who is actually the new editorial assistant at Unwritten Histories. Ooh. (laughs) 
Stephanie Pettigrew, who's at uh, UNB, she's, we were just talking about different fields and different courses that are offered and how, like, I love medical history, but it's not really offered as courses out here in BC very often, but it is in, in Eastern Canada. So, I mean, that's a big difference. And I think out here in BC, you have much more of a focus on Indigenous history than than you do maybe in other parts of the country. feel comfortable saying from my experience in Regina, a lot more focus on French Canada in the East. Oh, yeah. Everyone hates Quebec out here. <laughs> Well, that seems like an unfair characterization. Uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of misinformation about Quebec. In there you go. I think that's a better way. I think that's a better way to put it. I, I students who have never even heard of New France. Wow. Yeah. Which is always interesting. Because, I mean, it, the, the, the stuff that you learn in high school is different. Like going to school in Quebec, I learned about a very nationalistic perspective on Canadian history that started and ended with Quebec. But out here in BC, uh, a lot of the history doesn't really start until post-confed. Like they, most of the earlier parts are just not considered relevant because it's not really relevant to BC specifically. Right, because yeah, pro- provincial guidelines want to focus on that province, which is mm-hmm. I, I, I get the the need for that. But I mean, at the same time, the history of BC is inextricably linked with the history of the rest of the country. <laughs> I guess but we can get into discussions about regionalism and course contents and all that too. Um, it, you know, there's there's political reasons for it too, and yeah. history is way more complicated than most people think it, it is. Yeah, it, it really is. And because of that, I think there's we, we we talked about the Johnny McDonald thing. Obviously, what's going on in the United States with Confederate statues is is a big deal. So so I'll get you out of here. I, I want to know your thoughts on this, given that you have so much knowledge of the field as a whole. Do you think that Canadian history is in a good place? Is it strong? Or is there something that needs to change to to keep it relevant? Because we've seen across the country enrollments going down, departments offering fewer courses. Anyone who's on the job market knows the general lack of tenure track positions in history departments across the country is seems to be a real thing. Those are markers that would have a lot of people concerned for the state of history in 2017 and moving forward. But you, as someone who is, has been engaged with the field, both in terms of the writings, uh, we didn't mention the, the not only do you have the guest posts, you, you curate historians who are on Twitter and historians who are online. You have the Historians' Histories series as part of the, the blog as well. So, so you, you're familiar with the personal stories of a lot of historians across the country too. So I'm just curious as to your take as to the state of history in 2017 and moving forward. Wow. Easy question. Um, I know, right? <laughs> so a, a, soft, a softball question to end. Yeah. I think that as depressing as it is, there there is a, a bright future. I think the problem with history is not so much the content but the way that it's taught and the sort of emphasis that a lot of people place on it i mean i guess i guess to explain if you if you watch tv or if you spend any time on the internet some of the most popular television shows or podcasts or you know what have you all seem to be history based like if you look at the top 10 podcasts on like itunes a significant percentage of them deal with history in one shape or form I think that the interest in history is there. People are still fascinated by history, but it's maybe not the kind of history that has been 
predominantly taught in universities and in particular in high school because high schools I think are about like 20 30 years behind what historians are doing mm. in real time so uh, that doesn't help uh, because you know we're teaching students stuff that's not only outdated in terms of content but outdated in terms of methodologies and when you show students I think <clears throat> the possibilities that history holds or like the stories that they can tell they're fascinated um, like I uh, like I teach a survey, so inevitably I get a lot of people who are there because they have to be and they think that Canadian history is the most boring thing in the universe. And I can't say that I blame them because it, it can be, but it can also be absolutely fascinating. And I think when you open your eyes to that, uh, there are students' eyes to that, then, you know, it's an amazing transformation. I've had so many students tell me that, they're, that the courses that I've taught have changed their perspective on the past and the present, that they sort of understand how things work more in terms of today by understanding how things have worked in the past and sort of power dynamics like that. And I, I see a lot of really amazing, innovative stuff being done on the Internet, in particular by a younger generation of historians. That is, you know, amazing and inspiring, uh, like all of the amazing digital projects that I keep seeing and hearing about, you know, are just wonderful. And I think the increasing emphasis on community-based history and um, history that is in service to the public is also really amazing. I think that the sort of educational system at whatever level hasn't necessarily caught up to that lively discussion debate perspective as much as it could have. And I think that that's probably part of the problem. I mean, a lot of the course calendars haven't been updated in, in a decade at least, and they're still sort of taught in a very much more geographic or chronologically based format, whereas most historians today work much more thematically. So I don't know, but I, I think something, I, I feel like we're at a tipping point and something very interesting that I probably will not be able to predict will happen over the next five to ten years. But I don't think the future for history is quite as dismal as a lot of people think. In the job market is a whole separate thing that I'm not even going to get into because that's just that's a whole other kettle of fish. But um, in terms of the field of history and the field of history in Canada, yeah, I mean, if you look at the roundup, some of that stuff that's going on is just absolutely amazing and fascinating. And, you know, the vibrant discussions that happen are, are so inspiring. And there's so many new avenues for research and so many new voices. And I think we just need to keep emphasizing the principles of inclusivity, diversity, and speaking truth to power. I think that's very well said. I think you're right. And, and my hope is that with all the digital stuff that that gap that you identified gets smaller, that there can be a quicker turnaround of what is happening in history and then it get ref gets reflected in the classrooms. I think it happens. It's starting to happen a little bit, even if it's not in curricula across the country as teachers are just bringing it in. Yeah, but it's depressing. Like, cause as a social historian, that's how I approach most of my courses. And like, I have to keep explaining what it means because most people don't know. They right. think that history is just the history of, and, and this is going to make me sound really facetious, but dead white guys, um, because that's the history that they see represented in terms of the History Channel, which is probably more properly called the World War II and Aliens <laughs> Channel at this point. And in terms of the history that they see represented on, on the news, in terms of the sort of talking heads that they see talking about history, is very, very white, male-centric, and sort of more focused on military history, political history, but... I mean, that's that's just one aspect to it. And there's a lot more stuff that's really amazing. Um, and uh, I can see more and more of it happening. Like um, some of the some of my favorite posts are when I get to bug historians to tell me about the cool 
stuff they're doing in the classrooms, like Mary Ellen Kelm's amazing collaborative syllabus, or um, I really want to take Janice Thiessen's course on food history because I'm super jealous of her students, um, and all the amazing work being done on oral history and community-based programs and projects where you actually have students going out and like doing history and doing public history, like the public history initiatives in some of the Ontario universities are amazing. Um, so yeah, I hope I just hope we close that gap faster. Yeah, I, hopefully, and and I know at least one of the two universities in this town uh, where I currently am is re are redoing their uh, whole setup for courses uh, over the course of this year uh, and looking to integrate more of those sorts of things. So hopefully, it, it does sort of help in that in that process, and uh, and you're the one who's in part documenting it all uh, how that's all <laughs> happening so again the the blog if you're not familiar unwritten histories it's unwritten history com weekly roundup of what's going on in canadian history and the monthly top five articles in canadian history a bunch of great series is on top of that the historians his, histories one as i mentioned and also you have the blog posting and guest post all sorts of stuff there and we didn't talk about this before, but donate to it. Uh, these things can be expensive to run and they are very time consuming. And there is a donate, a way to donate on the site. You can become a patron of the site. So I would encourage everyone, if you can, to uh, donate help out because if you've never gone to the site and you just look at what is happening with everything that's up there, it, it you can it's obvious that there's been a lot of work put in. So I would encourage people to to go to the site and if you can uh, donate as well. Um, that's my unsolicited plug for people to donate. Thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, and I'm very gracious, uh, grateful for any everyone's support, financial or not. Yes, and and yeah, and and if you can't donate. Then, then this is still a great resource and a great place that, that you should have bookmarked and, and have it be a regular place where you, you go. Also, Andrew, you did mention the Beyond 150. So for people who don't know, there was the Beyond 150 Twitter conference that you helped organize with Krista McCracken of mm -hmm. Active History uh, and other uh, very well-esteemed institutions. And uh, we didn't talk about that because we're going to try and organize a podcast specific to that because it was such a, a significant undertaking and a really good idea. So for anyone who is yelling at their phones right now or however you listen to these saying, why aren't you asking about Beyond 150? That's why, because we're going to talk about it in a different episode. Uh, and, and anyone who didn't know about it or wasn't able to participate, if you go to Unwritten Histories, Andrea has put together some of the best presentations and, and compiled all those tweets. So oh, all the presentations, all the presentations, all, all the presentations are up there. So, so you can go and you can experience the conference, not in real time, but you can still go back and, and see what it was all about. So we encourage everybody to do that. So again, that's Andrea Eidener coming at us live from Vancouver. Thanks again for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.